0: All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be with you today. We are, uh, let's see, I guess we're winding down season five here. I might change my mind, but actually, I kind of think this is probably going to be it. Sad, man. Yeah, I know, but it doesn't mean we can't do more in the future. True. Well... It's been fun analyzing and then reassembling your syntax into sound waves that are appropriate for human beings. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't, I don't think anyone's ever said that. Well, I know no one has ever said that sentence to me before. So that's nice. I appreciate it. It's been fun working with you as well, Marcus. All right, you can help me out here in a minute. First, I want to let everyone know that a little bit of this episode and then even more on my Patreon page, I'm going to be talking to my longtime friend, Dana Hicks. Dana is actually someone I've known since the last century. Before my time. I know, I know that. I know that my life probably predates AI. Well, I guess it depends on how you define artificial intelligence, but yeah. Anyhow, that was for the last episode. The point here is I've known Dana a while. I didn't realize he was a writer, but he's come out with this book. It's called uh, The Knot, How to Secure Healthy Modern Relationships While Not Being Tied to Marriages Past. And I think it's a really good, interesting, unique look at love and marriage and relationships and divorce and how we define them and kind of what we've gotten ourselves into. In a nutshell, Dana talks about how the customs and the traditions that we are so quick to attach to marriage probably are less to do with any biblical mandates or standards or like the one God-ordained way it's supposed to go and more about cultural assumptions, and the way tradition has just played out over the years. And I think as he peels away the layers of some of those, some of that like misdirected thinking, he will help people carve out space to give themselves grace, to give their partner grace. I think it's really good stuff for people to go into marriage knowing. It's certainly good stuff for the church to know. So, um, or for people who don't go to church and who maybe have had some kind of I don't know, convoluted church, uh, quasi-religious understandings of what marriage is. I just think it'll be helpful for folks. I hope you'll pick it up at uh, Amazon or anywhere else. But I know you can pick it up at Amazon. But first, I wanted to respond to a few more of the questions that were given to me now, what's been, what, about three months ago, probably. As you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, that this season we've been working through what I'm calling Frequently Asked Questions, So they're the kind of FAQs that I get from time to time, and certainly recently I got a handful of them, about 80 or 90. And I feel pretty good about how this season has gone. We've essentially just taken all these different questions, we've compiled them into different categories, and then I've reformatted the questions in a way that makes it a little bit easier for me to respond. And we've covered all kinds of topics, parenting, meaning making, uh, how to read the Bible, uh, deconstruction, technology. Questions about chance and randomness and the future and life and judgmentalism. I mean, we've covered quite a few topics. And so, if you asked a question, I'm pretty sure at this point that I've responded to it either in the podcast or in a conversation with one of my friends on my Patreon page. But just to make sure, I grabbed a handful more of those questions and I'm going to like slightly rapid fire. <laughs> slightly rapid fire. Does that even make sense? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm going to try to give a quick response, is what I'm trying to say, to a half a dozen more questions here today. Now, as you know, I can make answers very long, but today I'm literally just trying to respond with the first thing that comes to my mind and doing my best to keep it short. I mean, yeah, we'll see how it goes, right? It remains to be seen if that will actually happen. After that, we'll transition into chatting with Dana And much of that, again, will be here, but the rest of it will be on my Patreon page. Just look for patreon.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster. All right, Marcus, does that sound good? Sure. You want to throw a few questions at me? Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. Number one, why is there an angry God belief? Yeah, there's an angry God belief, I think, because we have angry people. So angry people are looking to justify their anger And they always create angry deities in order to make that happen. I think that's pretty much it. Fair enough. Okay, why do I need to go to church? Why do we need to go to church? Well, my first response is, I'm not sure that we do need to go to church. Um, If church has been done like it's been done so much in Americanized Christianity, that doesn't mean that all churches are bad or all people who go to church are bad. I've certainly been a part of a lot of them over the years. I do think we need a tribe. So if you, can be, if you can become a part of a tribe without slipping into tribalism, and if church can serve that role, that, that could be really helpful. Why do we not talk about collective sin? Collective sin. That's a good question. We don't talk about collective sin. Well, we don't talk about collective much of anything in the West, in America. We're really about individualism, right? And so talking about individual sin is easier than collective sin because if you keep everything on an individual level, you can kind of demarcate, line out who's wrong, who's right, and then make sure we get on the right side. Uh, Meanwhile, what I think is going on is that love sees all of us, irrespective of our labels and where we come from and what we are doing and who we are. So the goal really is to still, still talk about how we have individual choices, right? And consequences. But the importance of recognizing what's going on collectively, corporately, that's a really important thing. What should you care about? Okay, personally, I think what you should care about is figuring out how to love better both yourself and your enemy. Because in an individual situation which is like a Girardian way of reminding us that we live in a relational cosmos there are no individuals we're all interdividuals so in an interdividual situation there's a part of me within my enemy and vice versa which is not a very comfortable thing to talk about but I think is the reality and it has something to do with the whole question about collective sin and personal sin how we tend not to talk about the collective as much because we don't want to recognize our problems in others. Meanwhile, subconsciously or maybe unconsciously, depending on how we use those terms, we're very aware of it. I, I think it's part of the reason we have so many problems with other people because we see some of ourself in them and it drives us crazy just a bit. But I'm trying to keep this rapid fire, right? So personally, I would say figure out how to love better and love your enemy better. Which, by the way, will always invite you to figure out boundaries and love and grace and mercy, like how much of yourself to give away. It's, it's challenging. It's, per- it's pretty complicated, isn't it? Okay, next one. Why can't previous generations respect that we might be bringing more to the table instead of blowing them off as less important? Why can't previous generations respect what we might be bringing yeah, because, well, first of all, I think they're just tired, right? I mean, they've been through so much change in their life. Um, I think the first invitation is for us to give them grace and to recognize they've been through a lot. And by the way, they're carrying some of the stuff from their previous generation. I mean, I do think that that's happening a lot. I think there's a lot of people who haven't worked through what you know their parents or their former church or former church leaders the kind of baggage they gave to them. So everyone's working through something. And I guess I wanna say initially that it's an opportunity for us to give them grace. And if you're seeing the rigidity, if you're seeing the reality that they're not changing and you know they should, well, it's just going to, again, am I using the word invite a lot? I think that's what's going on. It's going to invite you to be the person that is flexible enough To still hold their rigidity and still try your best to be in relationship with them so that you don't pass that tendency on to the next generation. Yeah, which is probably not the answer any of us are looking for. Uh, I think the reality is most people don't wind up changing. And so you are being asked to be the change and then to be a good kind of a role model to the next generation because... If we simply desire the desires of those who went before us, we're just going to have the same old problems. So we have to come up with new role models that we can desire. Uh, you know, Gerard says that ideology for him is basically a closed system of desire. So in other words, it's a system that doesn't allow for new desires. So you are going to probably have to break open that system and to find new people to emulate Begin to emulate them so that when others emulate you, they're emulating health. And, uh, and that is challenging. You know, all these things that we're talking about, it takes um, courage. It takes self-awareness. It takes work. It's a lot easier just to do the standard quo and repeat the scapegoating, you know, dysfunctional, mimetic stuff that we've always done. It, it takes more work to break out of that. But it's also really honorable work. I mean, what more could you want to be a human being? I mean, what, what better thing is there in being a human being than identifying old unhealthy patterns and trying to change them for the future, for yourself and for those who come after you? So I think that's so important, being, being able to adapt into something new. Yeah, evolution, adaptation, those are really important qualities that humans don't always pursue, pursue. I mean, humans individually sometimes do, but systemically we don't. And so the ability to, to help like be the, what, the leaven inside the bread that helps it to change, the seed that grows into the tree that affects the forest, that change into something healthier is really important. But the point isn't that forays into mimetic theory or open and relational th- theology opens the one proper door, like the slightest movement of which triggers an angelic chorus of ahs or something. Ah. The point might be that there is more than one door. And I've noticed that even with the ORT crowd, open and relational theology, that if I ramp up tribalism a bit, it's a little easier to gain followers or readers or whatever metric you want to use. Now, I do like to think, and I think this is true, it's not quite as easy as it is in other religious communities or paradigms because ORT tends to be a bit more educated and savvy and self-aware about all of this. But still, it's easier to go that route. Yeah, it's, it's true. Um, I got great correspondence from my new friend, my new elderly friend, Dr. John Cobb. He invited me to speak to a group a few weeks ago, and I was really honored to do so. Afterwards, he sent me an email and he thanked me. And among other things, he said something to the effect of, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. If there is work, if there is Girardian work that needs to edit or change or influence process or open a relational theology, go for it. Because the point of process is that it is a process. It is in change. That is the essence of that thinking. And it was a great gift to me. It was a gift of encouragement, also a gift of humility that he would email me that and say that. And I don't intend to forget it, both the email and both the sentiment, which is be open to change. If you're changing, God bless you. Actually, I think God is blessing you enabling you to change. The very reason you're able to change is because God is with you, helping you see, you know, like new answers and new responses, helping you to name old things, to grieve them and to mourn them, to let them go and to step into the new, which is just another way of of saying what Jesus said, you're blessed when you mourn. It's like the prerequisite to getting to something new is that you have to grieve the old So keep it up. I'm proud of you. I believe in you. I think there's hope for the future if we can do all of that. If we can't do these things, then there probably isn't a lot of hope. It'll probably be full of violence and scapegoating calamity, just like we've done in the past. But it doesn't have to go in that direction. It really doesn't, despite what maybe overly religious people are saying. I don't think that love needs for this whole thing to end in an apocalyptic, violent, you know, singular act of destruction in order to prove who God is. Um, That doesn't make any sense at all to me. What I really think is that no matter what, that non-scapegoating, non-violent, non-binary love is available to us, and if we'll engage with it and use it for ourselves and enter into it for the sake of others, that will actually avoid the apocalypse. Anyhow, as we get ready to transition into my conversation with Dana, uh, where we're going to talk about marriage and relationship and some some of the stuff he's written about, I I just want to say that um, your actions matter, your choices matter, and that it might be accurate to say that God needs you. You are the indispensable context, as my friend Andrew Davis says, you're the indispensable context for love to work for God. Uh, You and the whole world, it's something that God needs. Without the world, God and love just becomes an abstract point. You, there, has to be a, there has to be a place of intersection where love interacts with us. And so you are that person. You're important. I don't care what you've gone through or what you're dealing with. It took 13.8 billion years for, for you to happen. So here you are. You have something to give. You have something to offer this world, to fight for, to live for, to give your life away. And it's, it's a great thing to be you. So dream intentionally, pray with expectation. I really do still believe God invents history in interaction with those who do not give up. Thanks, everyone. Really appreciate you hanging out with me. Make sure to find me online, JonathanFosterOnline.com. Make sure to catch the rest of this conversation. I'm going to play a few minutes of it here. And then the rest of it will be at my Patreon page, Jonathan underscore Foster. What is it? (laughs) Patreon.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster. And there you can find me and the doctor, Dana Hicks, chatting about his book. All right. Peace out. God
1: bless. Uh, uh, so a lot of that mindset, fortunately, is kind of falling by the by the wayside. But um, turns out, you know, wanting to have sex is not a great foundation to get married. Um, and I cite some of the research in, in the book of of um, some of some of what's going on in there, which is why evangelical divorce rate is um, is is higher than than the rest of the rest of the population. Yeah. Is that they get married so darn young, which is a great because they want to have sex. And and again, just not a great, not a great foundation for it. But that being said, what would I say to my kids? What would, do I say to my kids? How do I how do I encourage them? I think he, you know, something I didn't realize, I think, when I got married is that, you know, for most of human history, when your life expectancy is to you're going to live to be 45 years old, uh, you know, and you'll be an old man at 45, um, you know, saying till death do us part just carries a lot less weight when you, your life expectancy is 45 as opposed to 85. Um, and for my kids, I mean, their life expectancy may be into their well into their 90s you know, so saying till death to us part's a pretty big commitment and it, 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 it's, it's a long, and there's a lot that changes, um, not just, you know, as humans develop and grow and learn and whatnot individually, but I mean, culturally, there's a lot of changes that, that are going to happen in the next 50 years. You know, we have no idea. I mean, again, you and I look back at, in our own lifetimes in our fifties, both of us in our fifties and, the world has made huge, huge changes in, in, in those that time. And you just have no idea what to expect. So that that being said, you know, marriage is, uh, has to be malleable. It has to be changed. It has to evolve. It has to function in different ways, in different seasons of a person's life than it does in others. And and there's going to be times, you know, Jonathan, I'm sure you experienced this too, you know, when when you have kids, man, all of a sudden everything shifts, right? You know, now you've got the infant and I, I was,
0: Thanks for spending time with us this season. Who knows exactly what Jonathan will be doing in the future, but make sure to sign up for his newsletter at JonathanFosterOnline.com to stay up to date. Peace out.